Welcome to the Men of God Network. The Men of God Network is a ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. The narrated Puritan now has a new website. Visit us at puritanaudiobooks.com. Today's biography and narration is from John Gregory Pike. Born in the year 1784, he died in the year 1854. Upon being educated, chiefly at home. He was, from 1802 to 1806, a student at Wimbledon Baptist College, Hertfordshire, and there he became a Baptist. On leaving college, he acted for three years as a classical assistant in the school of his uncles. In the early days of his pastorate, a native missionary at Serampore had been supported by Pike's Church. At the annual association at Boston, Lincolnshire, in June 1816, his earlier proposal was accepted, and that was that there be a General Baptist Missionary Society formed. He was appointed first a secretary and issued a small pamphlet on missions on behalf of the committee. In 1819, he undertook a preaching tour in Lincolnshire and Cambridgeshire to excite a missionary spirit and undertook the training of young missionaries and his family. Pike showed some independence of thought amid many strongly marked prejudices. He opposed Catholic emancipation. His religious books and tracts had a wide circulation here and in America. It was estimated that over 600,000 copies of his works were circulated in America and at least 800,000 at home. The copyrights of the most popular he presented to the Religious Tract Society and the American Tract Society in 1847. They were a Catechism of Scriptural Instruction for Young Persons, 1816, The Consolation of Gospel Truth, London, 1817, Persuasives to Early Piety, Derby, in 1819, Religion and Eternal Life, Derby in London, 1834, Christian Liberality and the Distribution of Property, Religious Tract Society, 1836, a memoir in Remains with a Portrait of Pike, was edited by his sons in 1855, along with sermons and sketches, with the short life abridged from the former, published in 1861. A complete edition of his works with a biographical sketch was published in parts. In 2006, Persuasives to Early Piety was published by Sola Dale Gloria Publications. The beginning of that book reads, My dear young friend, if a person could rise from the dead to speak to you, how attentive would you listen to his discourse, and how much would you be affected by it? Yet a messenger from the dead cannot tell you more important things than those to which I now beseech you to attend. I come to ask you to give your heart to God. I come to invite you to follow the Redeemer now. I come to entreat you to walk into pleasant paths of early piety. The following is another writing by J.G. Pike. Written in 1824, the consolations of gospel truth, to which are added some affecting narratives describing the horrors of unpardoned sin and the prospect of death and eternity. Quote, I was not long since called to visit a poor gentleman while of the most robust body and the gayest temper I ever knew. But when I visited him, oh, how was the glory departed from him! 
I found him no more that sprightly and vivacious son of joy which he used to be, but languishing, pining away and withering under the chastening hand of God, his limbs feeble and trembling, his countenance forlorn and ghastly, and the little breath he had left sobbed out in sorrowful sighs, his body hastening apace to the dust to lodge in the silent grave, the land of darkness and desolation, his soul just going to God who gave it, preparing to wing itself away to its long home to enter upon an unchangeable and eternal state. When I was come into his chamber, and had seated myself on his bed, he first cast a most wishful look upon me, and then begun, as well as he was able to speak, Oh, that I had been wise, that I had known this, that I considered my latter end. Ah, oh, mister, death is knocking at my doors, and a few hours more I shall draw my last gasp. And then judgment, a tremendous judgment. How shall I appear unprepared as I am before the all-knowing and omnipotent God? How shall I endure the day of his coming? When I mentioned, among many other things, that strict holiness which he had formerly so slightly esteemed, he replied with a hasty eagerness, Oh, that holiness is the only thing I now long for. I have not words to tell you how highly I value it. I would gladly part with all my estate, large as it is, or a world to obtain it. Now my benighted eyes are enlightened. I clearly discern the things that are excellent. What is there in the place where I am going but God? Or what is there to be desired on earth but religion? But if this God should restore you to health, I said, think you that you should alter your former courses? I call heaven and earth to witness, he said, I would labor for holiness as I shall soon labor for life. As for riches and pleasures and the applause of men, I count them as dross and dung, no more to my happiness than the feathers that lie on the floor. Oh, if the righteous judge would try me once more, if he would but reprieve and spare me a little longer, and what a spirit would I spend the remainder of my days. I would know no other business, aim at no other end than perfecting myself in holiness. Whatever contributed to that, every means of grace, every opportunity of spiritual improvement should be dearer to me than thousands of gold and silver. But alas... Why do I amuse myself with fond imaginations? The best resolutions are now insignificant because they are too late. The day in which I should have worked is over and gone, and I see a sad, horrible night approaching, bringing with it the blackness of darkness forever. Heretofore, woe is me. When God called, I refused. When he invited, I was one of them that made excuse. Now, therefore, I receive the reward of my deeds. Fearfulness and trembling are come upon me. I smart and am in sore anguish already. And yet this is but the beginning of sorrows. It does not yet appear what I shall be, but surely I shall be ruined, undone, and destroyed with an everlasting destruction. This sad scene I saw with mine eyes. These words and many more equally affecting I heard with mine ears and soon after attended the unhappy gentleman to his tomb. A Dying Infidel
A certain individual, who resided not far from Dudley, in Worcestershire, was for some years a steady and respectable professor of Christianity. During his time, he was a good father, a good neighbor, and a loyal subject. A wicked man, however, put into his hands Thomas Paine's Age of Reason and Volney's Ruins of Empires. He read these pernicious books, renounced Christianity, and became a bad father, a bad neighbor, a disloyal subject, and a ferocious infidel. At length, sickness seized him and death stared him in the face. Before the period of his dissolution, some Christian friends, who had formerly united with him in the sweet duties of devotion, resolved, if possible, to obtain access to him. With much difficulty, they accomplished their object. They found him in a most deplorable state. Horror was depicted on his countenance, and he seemed determined not to be comforted. They spoke to him in a suitable manner, respecting the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation, but he replied with fury, It is too late. I have trampled on his blood. They offered to pray with him, but he swore they should not. However, they kneeled down and presented their supplications to God in his behalf. And while in this humble posture they were pleading the merits of Jesus, the poor, miserable infidel actually cursed God and died. A Young Woman Several of the preceding narratives show how awful it is at the hour of death to those who deny the Lord who bought them. But it is not those only who advance thus far in iniquity that feel the bitterness of death. To many who have borne the sacred name of Christian, the hour of dissolution is an hour of dismay, and would be so to everyone who has reached that solemn period, negligent of the great salvation, if the soul were sensible of its own state, and awake to the contemplation of eternal realities. Let the young and careless seriously read the impressive account that follows, and while they read it, Think of their latter end. Quote, Bathed in tears, a girl came about three months ago to tell me that her sister was dying and wished much to see me. The poor woman, who was arrived at life's tremendous verge, was about thirty years of age. Her circumstances were lowly, but her mind was better informed than that of most in her rank. She had been educated at a Sunday school, and having a remarkably good voice, had attended the chapel with the singers till her marriage. At this period, she not only knew much of her Bible, but also gave some pleasing symptoms of a change of mind. But alas, she gave her hand to a young man who was destitute of the fear of God, and who had become a snare to her. How many that in youth promise fair to be the followers of Jesus are ruined by improper marriages." Oppressed with domestic cares, poor Mary now neglected even an occasional attendance on the means of grace. She had run well, but sin deceived her. Daily misery, however, preyed on a constitution at all times delicate. A dropsy threatened her with death. No sooner was she confined to the bed of affliction than she recollected the truths which once she took delight in learning. She remembered God and was troubled 
and her neglect of those things which she well knew belonged to her eternal peace filled her mind with anguish. I'd been with her the day before. How bitterly did she then lament her conduct! How hard she found the way of the transgressor! I reminded her of what John says, If any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. She seemed a little encouraged to expect mercy. We engaged in prayer and parted, but now she was evidently dying. As I entered the room, I beheld a face distorted with pain and heard an exclamation distressing enough to pierce any heart. Oh, I cannot die. I want to see his face. Never did I enter so fully into the importance of Balaam's prayer. Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. I asked her, whose face she wished to see. Her reply was, the reconciled face of Jesus. Have you no hope of an interest in Christ? I inquired, no, I have no hope. I am lost. I cannot die. How I long for some careless people whom I knew to witness the end of one who had neglected, and that against the dictates of her own conscience, a great salvation. The writer of this account then endeavored to point her to the blood of Jesus. Oh, she exclaimed, that I had an interest in that blood. He soon after left the room with feelings not to be described, and in a few minutes she expired. Oh, let those who have enjoyed religious instruction in youth, and afterward neglected the Savior and salvation, consider what miseries they are preparing for themselves hereafter, and let them remember her whose last words almost were, Oh, I cannot die. I cannot die. Terrors of Death The Eternal God has taught us in His Word that the way of transgressors is hard. Though the entrance of the path that leads to eternal ruin may seem strode with flowers, yet all the hapless travelers in it must sooner or later discover that it is crowded with sorrows and ends and destruction. None more painfully realize the truth of this assertion than those who have trodden this delusive path, after having been once apparently inclined to walk in the ways of peace. The sad account which follows respects a young woman who acted this ruinous part. Though she moved in a humble sphere, her pitiable case is not less affecting, nor should the warning that it gives to the careless be less impressive. She was born of poor but honest parents, and was taught the first principles of religion in a Sabbath school. At the age of sixteen, she engaged in service in her native village. At her first place, she continued two years. In her eighteenth year, she removed into a religious family. Till then, she had lived ignorant of the gospel and careless about her eternal state. But during her continuance in this situation, she appeared deeply impressed with a sense of her sinfulness and made an open profession of religion. In her nineteenth year, she removed to a place much superior to the former, as it respects this world. But alas, the master of the house was a lover of pleasure more than a lover of God. Here, religious duties were not only neglected, but even ridiculed. She met with no little persecution from her fellow servants. This induced her to neglect private prayer and other means of grace. 
At length, she was seldom seen at public worship. A Christian friend perceived her declension by her backwardness to discourse on religious subjects. She had previously been very forward to converse on the bad things, but at this time was quite the reverse. Yet she did not return back to the world without considerable checks of conscience. She knew that she was doing wrong, but became hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. About the twentieth year of her age, she broke a blood vessel. An apothecary was sent for immediately, but no relief could be afforded. Her appointed time was now arrived. On the day after the circumstance took place, she was visited by the person who had observed her departure from the way of life, and who states the following particulars of different interviews with her. Quote, on asking her how she was, she said, very bad, very bad. I then told her I understood there was no hope of her recovery, and proceeded to inquire how it was with her in regard to her eternal welfare. She exclaimed, that is what I want. I don't care about my life, if my sins were pardoned. I then spoke of the power and willingness of Christ to save lost sinners, but she answered there was no pardon for her. She had been such a great sinner. I then enlarged on the precious promises of the gospel and its invitations to miserable sinners, but all seemed to aggravate the feelings of her guilty conscience. She burst into tears and said, Oh, that I had repented when the Spirit of God was striving with me, but now I am undone. I then offered up a prayer for her, and finding that talking to her was only sharpening the stings of her wounded conscience, I left her. I again visited her late in the evening of the same day. She was much weaker from the loss of blood, and her countenance bespoke the dreadful horror of her mind, which no doubt hastened her speedy dissolution. On asking her how she felt, she answered, Miserable! Miserable! I then repeated some encouraging passages of Scripture to backsliders. But alas, it was all in vain. Her soul labored under the greatest agonies, she exclaimed, Oh, how I have been deceived. When I was in health, I delayed repentance from time to time. Oh, that I had my time to live over again. Oh, that I had obeyed the gospel, but now I must burn in hell forever. Oh, I cannot bear it. I cannot bear it. In this manner, she continued breathing out most horrible expressions. I reminded her that Jesus Christ would in no wise cast out those sinners who came to him, and that his blood cleanses from all sin. She said, The blood of Christ will be the greatest torment I shall have in hell. Tell me no more about it. I then left her with feelings not to be described. She died next morning at six o'clock. I inquired of the woman who attended her if she continued in the same state to the last. She said she was much worse after I left her, and that they durst not stay in the room with her. She was heard to exclaim several times about an hour before her end, Eternity! Eternity! Oh, to burn throughout eternity! Thus died at the age of twenty this miserable mortal. In her mournful departure, she adds another to the many solemn proofs which we have that eternity demands all the care of an immortal being, and that the hours passed on a deathbed are not the time for repentance. 
Joseph Priestley One of the most melancholy sights which the world can present is to behold a man of extensive powers and a benevolent disposition, employed through a long and active life in diffusing baneful errors and injuring the souls of men. Such is the case with him whose name stands at the head of this article. Joseph Priestley was born in 1733. In 1752, he entered the Academy at Daventry to pursue a course of preparatory studies for the Christian ministry. His friends entertained Calvinistic sentiments, and he inquired in early life a serious turn of mind. Before he went to Daventry, he had become an Arminian, but had by no means rejected the doctrine of the Trinity or the Atonement. There he became a necessitarian and embraced what is termed a heterodox side on almost every question of importance. After finishing his course of study, he removed to a congregation at Needham, Market, in Suffolk. Here he had about an hundred hearers, but soon avowing himself an Arian, his hearers fell off apace. While there, he obtained a full persuasion that the doctrine of the atonement, even in the most qualified sense, had no countenance from reason or scripture. He continued to proceed in his declining career from one baneful error to another. While collecting passages on the subject of the atonement, he became satisfied that the Apostle Paul's reasonings in many places were far from being conclusive, and he adds in a separate work, I examined every passage in which his reasoning appeared to me defective, or his conclusions ill-supported, and I thought them to be pretty numerous. As he found that the modest and learned Lardner though himself low in sentiment, did not approve his irreverent manner of treating the sacred authors, he did not submit this treatise to his inspection. But he says, I showed it to some of my younger friends and also to Dr. Kippus, and he advised me to publish it under the character of an unbeliever in order to draw more attention to it. Priestley at this time had not proceeded so far in his rejection of divine truth as he subsequently did, Yet from his own account, it appears he had already advanced so far that he could write upon the Holy Scriptures in the style of an infidel. What idea can be entertained of his Christianity? While at Needham, he also adopted the belief that the writers of the Scriptures were not inspired, and that all his ideas of supernatural influence, excepting for the performance of miracles, are unfounded in truth. In 1758, he removed to Natwich, and soon after became a tutor at the Academy of Warrington, where the students were occasionally edified by the exhibition of scenes from various plays. In 1767, he changed his residence to Leeds, and there became a Unitarian, and afterwards obtained the firmest persuasion that man is wholly material. The Word of God assures us that if we would become truly wise, we must imbibe a docile and humble disposition must desire the sincere milk of the word, the unsophisticated truths of Scripture. Nothing is more adverse to the acquirement of truth than a mind that, filled with proud self-sufficiency, will not stoop to embrace those truths, even in a revelation from heaven which are above the comprehension of its feeble but vaunted powers. Unitarianism itself must acknowledge mysteries in a blade of grass, but would have none in the nature or dealings of the deity, and therefore boldly explains away 
or daringly rejects those parts of his word which contain something mysterious in human view. That such, alas, is the spirit of Priestley is but too evident from the following extract, and we need wonder that he who promises divine teaching to the humble should refuse it to the proud, who obstinately refuse to receive the discoveries of his word. Referring to John 7.62, What and if you shall see the Son of Man ascend where he was before, he says, Though not satisfied with any interpretation that has been given of this extraordinary passage, yet rather than believe our Savior to have existed in any other state before the creation of the world, or to have left some state of greater dignity and happiness when he came here, I would have recourse to the old and exploded Sicinian idea of Christ's actual ascent into heaven, or of his imagining that he had been carried up there in a vision, which, like that of Paul, he had not been able to distinguish from a reality. Nay, I would not build an article of faith of such magnitude on the correctness of John's recollection and representation of our Lord's language. And so strange and incredible does the hypothesis of a pre-existent state appear. The sooner than admitted, I would suppose the whole verse to be interpolation, or that the old apostle dictated one thing, and his amanuensis wrote another. Instead of beholding a mind prepared humbly to receive whatever God may reveal, we here see a most resolute determination to reject one of the most plain and most important doctrines of the Bible. What could convince a man of the truth of a doctrine who sooner than believe it would obstinately adopt so ridiculous an hypothesis as that alluded to, or if that were not sufficient, would persuade himself that an inspired apostle's recollection had failed, and if this were not enough to uphold him in his incredulity, would suppose without the shadow of an argument that the abhorred passage were an interpolation, and if all this would not do, would then determine to believe that the apostle had an amanuensis who blundered as he wrote. Would a voice from heaven convince such a man? Probably sooner than believe the obnoxious truth, he would persuade himself that voice were an illusion of the fancy. In the beginning of the year 1804, his health rapidly declined. His son describes him as enjoying much composure and cheerfulness in his last moments. But it was not the cheerfulness which springs from knowing the love of Christ which passes knowledge. The following memorable passage mentions so strange a kind of comfort for the most trying hours, that had not his son given it publicity, it might also have been imagined that some enemy to Unitarianism had invented a relation, intending to cast odium on that delusive but baneful system. Quote, on Sunday, February 5th, he was much weaker. He dwelt for some time on the advantages he had derived from reading the scriptures daily, and advised me to do the same, saying that it would prove to me, as it had done to him, a source of the purest pleasure. He desired me to reach him a pamphlet, which was at his bed head, Simpson on the Duration of Future Punishment. It will be a source of satisfaction to you to read that pamphlet, he said, giving it to me. It contains my sentiments and a belief in them will be a support to you in the most trying circumstances, as it has been to me. We shall all meet finally. We only require different degrees of discipline, suited to our different tempers, to prepare us for final happiness." Quote. 
It cannot be that one who professed to have lived striving to reform what he called the corruptions of Christianity should speak of this as his support for the most trying circumstances, a belief that if he went to hell he should continue there but for a limited time, and when purified by such severe discipline should rise to final happiness? Ah, Unitarianism, is this your only solace for the hour of affliction and the bed of death? Could you afford your great apostle no better support than this? Then let my soul be found with those whom he would have deemed idolaters, whose unshaken hope rests on the atoning sacrifice of the Lamb that was slain, and who leave this world not expecting purification in hell, but assured that, when absent from the body, we shall be present with the Lord. The Punishment of Infidelity the following memoir differs from all the preceding in this respect, that at times the unhappy subject of it appears to have been deprived of reason. Yet his infidelity was a mournful cause of his occasional insanity, and as at lucid intervals his mind appears to have had the full exercise of its reasoning powers. His distressful case furnishes another powerful proof that the way of transgressors is hard. Hammond, the subject of this narrative, was a native of America and belonged to a respectable family. He was religiously educated and was moral in his youth. When he became a young man, he read the productions of Voltaire and other infidel writers and learned to reason against the authenticity and inspiration of the scriptures. He forsook public worship and spent his Sabbaths at a tavern. Yet he was a prudent man in pecuniary transactions, and as a neighbor was respected in his native village. When he was about thirty-five years of age, he was in the habit of trading to the West Indies. Previously to one of his voyages, he and an infidel companion visited a pious lady to whom they did not hesitate disclosing their deistical views. She said to them that she hoped they would think differently before it was too late. It will never be too late, rejoined the deists, for any but cowards. In the autumn after this conversation, Hammond set sail with his produce for a southern market. While he was absent, his unbelieving friend was attacked with a mortal disease and shuddered at the thought of meeting a holy God in judgment. He expressed his great anxiety and in agony of mind renounced his delusions. He died. On the return of Hammond, the pious woman made him acquainted with the circumstances of his friend's departure from this life, with the desire of impressing on his conscience the necessity of preparing to meet him before God. All that Hammond would say, however, was this, I am sorry that my friend died like a coward. After this admonition for the space of two years, the mind of this unhappy man found little quiet. He disputed sometimes less against Christianity than formerly and sometimes more with greater bitterness. On his passage homeward in his last voyage, his soul was like the troubled sea, and when he was in the midst of his marine path, a storm descended heavily upon the ship. At a particular hour during this tempest, he entertained a persuasion for which he could not account that his mother was dying, and even observed the time by his watch when he thought that she gave up her spirit. It is not for me to account for such mental impressions as I have no doubt Hammond actually felt. Let me simply state the fact. On his arrival at home, he found his mother dead. 
He told his friends what had been his presentiment and at what hour he thought she breathed her last breath. It proved so nearly as the family could remember that she actually died on the same day and in the course of the same hour which he designated. The mind of Hammond from this time became habitually gloomy. He felt himself guilty and wretched, but did not believe in Christ, the way to pardon, peace of conscience, consolation in tribulation, and everlasting felicity. The depression of a soul soon became so great that reason was banished from the seat of her dominion. Three times he attempted to hang himself before he was brought to an asylum. Finally, he was brought to a benevolent institution with his throat cut and was prevented for a time from intruding into the presence of his judge. After his wounds were healed, Mr. Eli conversed with him on religious subjects, and he was perfectly rational until the principles to which he ascended were applied to his own case. God is able and willing to save unto the uttermost all who come unto him. Well, that is unquestionable, he would answer. Then he is willing and able to save you. Oh, no, there are exceptions to all general rules. And God is the sovereign. He will not save me. For I have been such a sinner that God is miserable while I am out of misery. I ought to suffer. It is my duty to suffer forever. This is the train of his thought, and he appeared to court misery, because it was his duty to suffer, that the glory of God might be promoted. Indeed, if there is any such thing as a desire to be damned for the glory of God, as some writers assert, Hammond certainly possessed that grace, but it was only in a state of insanity and indescribable misery. When he was favored with a partial respite from his horrors, he would read the Bible, until it came to something which he did not understand. Then he would ask explanations of his keeper, and if his remarks were unsatisfactory, would cast down the book with indignation, because it was incomprehensible. Sometimes Hammond would indulge himself for a few moments in cheerful conversation, and then suddenly check himself and revert to his gloom, saying, But this is not suitable for one who tomorrow must commence a perpetuity of torment. Not long previous to his death, a brother, who had been confirmed by him in unbelief, came to pay him a visit. The conversation was deeply interesting and solemn. Ben, you see the state I am now in, and you know how I was brought to this condition. My present agonies are unutterable, and what must damnation be to a guilty sinner? Oh, fudge, fudge, John, cheer up, don't make a fool of yourself. Why should you trouble yourself about religion and be gloomy? Yes, Ben, I have made a fool of myself by reading those accursed books and despising the Bible. You cannot laugh me out of my present condition. You know that I am miserable now, and I tell you that my false ideas of religion have produced all that suffering which you witness. Ben, I am in hell. Oh, be warned by me. You cannot teach me anything new against the Bible, for I taught you all the infidelity which you know. But if this were my last breath, I should say to you, change your way of thinking, for your present plan will not answer. In this strain, Hammond conversed with his brother for more than an hour. But after all, Ben departed, saying, Oh, poor John, don't make a fool of yourself. One week before the death of Hammond, a person in the next room hung himself. Some conversation arose from this case between Hammond and his keeper. 
A man must be in great agony, I think, and must be very bold to enter uncalled the eternal world. Hammond. It is not boldness, but cowardice which tempts men to destroy their own lives. Is not that man a coward who shrinks from the common lot of humanity? It is really weakness to kill oneself from a dread of calamity or weight of temporal suffering. Men ought to bear life and not shrink from petty evils. Such was his language, and no one supposed that he retained a thought of performing the action which he condemned. But his sufferings he deemed unlike those of other men. His were the agonies of one already damned, who must suffer, or the eternal judge would suffer. He thought God was in misery so long as he was out of hell. In an hour, therefore, when nothing was apprehended, he made fast his cravat to the grates of his window, and while his back was against a wall, kneeled down, at the same time bending his body forward, and strangled himself. The Letter of a Dying Nobleman the following affecting letter is said to have been written by a nobleman on his deathbed to an intimate companion. It is too plain and affecting to need any remarks. Quote, Dear Sir, Before you receive this, my final state will be determined by the judge of all the earth. In a few days at most, perhaps in a few hours, the inevitable sentence will be passed that shall raise me to the heights of happiness or sink me to the depths of misery. While you read these lines, I shall be either groaning under the agonies of absolute despair, or triumphing in the fullness of joy. It is impossible for me to express the present disposition of my soul, the vast uncertainty I am struggling with. No words can paint the force and vivacity of my apprehensions. Every doubt wears a face of horror and would perfectly overwhelm me, but for some faint beams of hope which dart across the tremendous gloom. What tongue can utter the anguish of a soul suspended between the extremes of infinite joy and eternal misery? I am throwing my last stake for eternity and tremble and shudder for the important event. Good God, how have I employed myself? What enchantment hath held me? And what delirium has my life been past? What have I been doing while the sun and its race and the stars and their courses have lent their beams, perhaps only to light me to perdition? I never awoke until now. I have but just commenced the dignity of a rational being. Till this instance I had a wrong apprehension of everything in nature. I have pursued shadows and entertained myself with dreams. I have been treasuring up dust and sporting myself with the wind. I look back on my past life, and but for some memorials of infamy and guilt, it is all a blank, a perfect vacancy. I might have grazed with the beast of the field, or sung with the winged inhabitants of the woods to much better purpose than any for which I have lived. And oh, but for some faint hope, a thousand times more blessed had I been to have slept with the clods of the valley, and never heard the Almighty's fiat, nor woke into life at his command. I never had a just apprehension of the solemnity of the part I am to act till now. I have often met death insulting on the hostile plain, and with the stupid bows to fight his terrors, with a courage as brutal as that of the warlike horse I have rushed into the battle, laughed at the glittering spear, and rejoiced at the sound of the trumpet. 
nor had a thought of any state beyond the grave, nor the great tribunal to which I must have been summoned. It is this which arms death with all its terrors, else I could still mock at fear and smile in the face of the gloomy monarch. It is not giving up my breath. It is not being forever insensible. It is the thought at which I shrink. It is the terrible hereafter, the something beyond the grave at which I recoil. Those great realities which in the hours of mirth and vanity I have treated as phantoms, as the idle dreams of superstitious beings, these start forth and dare me now in their most terrible demonstrations. My awakened conscience feels something of that eternal vengeance I have often defied. To what heights of madness is it possible for human nature to reach? What extravagance is it to jest with death, to laugh at damnation, to sport with eternal change and recreate a jovial fancy with the scenes of infernal misery? Were there no impiety in this kind of mirth, it would be as ill-bred as to entertain a dying friend with the sight of a harlequin, or the rehearsal of a farce. Everything in nature seems to reproach this levity in human creatures. The whole creation man accepted as serious, man who has the highest reason to be so, while he has affairs of infinite consequence depending on the short uncertain duration. A condemned wretch may with as good a grace, go dancing to his execution, as the greatest part of mankind go on with such a thoughtless gaiety to their graves. Oh, my friend, with what horror do I recall those hours of vanity we have wasted together? Return ye, lost, neglected moments. How should I prize you above the eastern treasures? Let me dwell with hermits. Let me rest on the cold earth. Let me live in cottages, but... I but once more may stand as a candidate for an immortal crown, and have my probation for celestial happiness. You vain grandeurs of a court, you sounding titles and perishing riches, what do you now signify? What consolation, what relief can you now give me? I have a splendid passage to the grave. I die in state and languish under a gilded canopy. I am expiring on soft and downy pillows, and am respectfully attended by my servants and physicians. My dependents sigh, my sisters weep, my father bends beneath a load of years and grief. My lovely wife, pale and silent, conceals her inward anguish. My friend, who was as my own soul, suppresses his sighs and leaves me to hide his secret grief. But, oh, which of these will answer my summons at the high tribunal? Which of them will bail me from the arrest of death? Who will descend into the dark prison of the grave for me? Here they all leave me, after having paid a few idle ceremonies to the breathless clay, which perhaps may lie reposed in state, while my soul, my only conscious part, may stand trembling before my judge. My afflicted friends, it is very probable with great solemnity, will lay the senseless corpse in a stately monument inscribed with, Here lies a great. But could the pale carcass speak, it would soon reply, False marbles where nothing but poor and sordid dust lies here. While some flattering panegyric is pronounced at my internment, I may perhaps be hearing my just condemnation at a superior trial where an unerring verdict may sentence me to everlasting infamy. But I cast myself on his absolute mercy. 
through the infinite merits of the Redeemer of lost mankind. Adieu, my dear friend, till we meet in the world of spirits, end quote. <laughs>